0: Welcome to episode 120 of Inside Agriturf. I'm your host, Chris Biddle, and thank you for joining me. Now, we have welcomed a huge variety of guests on the podcast over the past four years. Dealers, manufacturers, trainers, educationalists, and many more. But here's someone new and fresh. Dan Schultz is a U.S.-based agribusiness psychotherapist. I think i better say that again, an agribusiness psychotherapist. Now, if you're baffled and intrigued, uh, let me explain by way of a story about the psychotherapist who put a half-full glass of water in front of a patient and said, tell me, are you a pessimist or an optimist? The patient immediately downed the water in one and replied, neither, I'm a problem solver. Now, Dan uses the term agribusiness psychotherapist because it is eye-catching when he might best be described as a problem solver, a marketing-led problem solver. Now, we are in the midst of extraordinary and rapidly moving technological advances, advances which in the past might well have occurred over a generation. But now we are talking about years, months, or even weeks. Recent history is littered with examples of companies who either didn't read the room as technology advanced or failed to spot trends fast enough. Sony's Betamax, Kodak, Blockbuster, BlackBerry are amongst those who let market dominance slip because they believed in their own dominance and didn't spot new trends coming up on the rails. Now, Dan is a deep thinker about ways in which companies can differentiate themselves. He helps agritech companies around the world think differently how they market and commercialise their products for this new age where software, not raw power, rules. But despite that, and as you will hear, Dan is not an exponent of in with the new, out with the old. Dan, a very warm welcome, and could I first start by asking about, about you and your background? We
1: live on a little farmstead here in southern Minnesota, and I have five kids. And we do a little bit of farming, but it's very small scale, very hobby farming just for us. We got into that. Actually, we can as we go through the conversation, we we can talk a little bit more about that potentially because it was my work in agriculture and and then my wife falling in love with even before I, I started working in agriculture that, that drove us here out of the city. So we're actually suburbanites. Who moved out into the country?
0: Excellent. So you've got a little bit of a test bed there for some of the the, the things you're working on. <laughs>
1: sure, sure. Most of the stuff, most of the stuff I work on is probably a little bit larger scale than that. What we do, but yes,
0: yeah. Okay, good. And uh, tell me a little bit about your background, your experience, what you've been doing before you're you're doing now.
1: Yeah. So I started in marketing in traditional PR. Role. I came out of college. Actually, during college, started working full time for a PR agency in, in Minneapolis. And so we were really focused on, on technology, but obviously, given the fact that we were working in Minneapolis, there there was a lot of agriculture around. We weren't. I wasn't necessarily looking to get into agriculture. We just worked with a couple of groups there. So we we were doing PR, and ended up, I took over the marketing arm of the PR organization as I grew, and then. From there, we spun it up into the most profitable part of the business, which was really exciting. That was the time. I don't know if you recall, but at this, it was like the 2014 time. It was like the end of the golden era for Facebook. And so you put a dollar in and get 10. And, and that was how I learned the ropes from a marketing perspective. It was really very exciting that we we could, uh, we could do a lot for our clients who were generally smaller to medium sized businesses at the time. And then I ended up moving from there to an, another organization ran the marketing function for them. And then once that business sold, moved to Honeywell, where I worked for two years in on their B2B business, running all the technology that that goes on behind the wall. So we were working on like small and medium sized commercial buildings, commercial structures. And that was, that was a lot of fun. It actually been funny since I've gotten into agriculture, which came a little bit later, it's been funny to see how the agronomy model, actually, I have pulled a lot from that experience at Honeywell, working with agronomists, working with crop specialists, working with different individuals like that, because those guys who are, when you're driving around in a van, you're doing, you're doing, you, you have to manage your time really effectively when you're going from building to building that you manage. It's very similar to going from field to field. And so I've seen a lot of crossover between those two industries, just in the way that those people, the technology that they I mean, need to frozen. enable what they do.
0: So the trigger into agriculture really came from those days, did it?
1: So I then I, I left Honeywell and stepped out on my own and started just doing consulting for a bunch of different groups. And inside of consulting, then what, what I ended up finding was I tripped into agriculture, I like to say, in that I was working for another group and basically found this opportunity to work with a company called sentara who is a uav or drone company here in the state they were actually in minnesota and ended up working for them and went from consultant to running their marketing to running the entire marketing function and uh, that was a blast and i just once i worked with them we were working with retailers here in in the central united states driving from farm to farm i felt totally in love with agriculture and said, this is the industry I want to work in for the rest of my life. Again.
0: You are a commentator principally now and thought provider, if you like, but do you style yourself as an agribusiness, let me get this right, agribusiness psychotherapist. Yes, explained. Right.
1: Yeah, no, fair enough. So it's a, it's a way for me to tell people, one, that I'm not just going to try to help them do marketing in a marketing function because i think a lot of marketers get bucketed we have lots of assumptions that go into marketing but that aside for one second it ultimately helps me do then talk to people about how to think differently about their business and so when that goes into marketing uh, uh, there's a general assumption inside of marketing that what we are doing when we're marketing is we're competing for market share that exists in the market today with a better brand and a better message and i reject as m- a marketer, I say that is not actually marketing. That is not actually the function of marketing. What marketing is trying to do is change the story going on in the customer's mind and get, provide them a lens to look at the, through which to look at their problem so that your solution, this solution, whichever solution you, you, you company is selling is the only possible outcome and the only possible act, point of action for them to take. We're not trying to market share with a better brand or a better product we're not coming out and saying we're better we're faster we're cheaper we're any word ending in er we are going to talk about how we are different and how our point of view makes it so that we're going to give you more success as a customer because ultimately products are things that companies build brands are things that companies make and create but problems are things that customers have and we want to have conversations that customers are interested
0: It's a relationship between the brands and the products and really what you're talking about, and that is the psyche of of, of the buying uh, process from a farmer.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. We work in this super highly technical space with lots of technology, but at the end of the day, the one thing that's never going to change is the fact that if you're selling to a farmer, you're selling to an agribusiness, you're selling to a person. And so I like to study things that aren't changing, things that aren't moving, because I spend so much of my day entrenched in things that are constantly, rapidly changing and evolving. And because that is such a slippery ground, I've looked for something that's a little bit more concrete. And in that, I found that the one thing that doesn't change is human psychology. Because you're selling to a person, you still have to connect to that person. And so looking at that and saying, how is it that we're going to connect with this person? How is it that we're going to be uniquely different? And how is it that we're going to make our product obviously improve their lives and communicate that effectively to them i think that is something that hasn't changed all the things that i talk about i say this all the time to people i'm not teaching anything revolutionary i'm not talking about anything revolutionary i'm talking about ideas that have been around since recent trout we're talking about them in the back in the 1980s right they're just there there are certain pieces and certain elements of it if i give examples it's generally more recent than that or or even farther back than that these things aren't new. It's, we take all the things, we look at all the businesses who have been really effective at marketing, who've been really effective at communicating their specific difference and creating, plainly speaking, enormous amounts of value in the marketplace. And we look at what they did naturally and say, how can we emulate?
0: Yeah. And uh, I don't mind admitting that I started in the agricultural uh, machinery business back in the 1960s. So I do move back twenty awesome. years from where you're putting your marker, uh, sure. but of course that generation uh, and from them really, and and it was the day of the old uh, Fergie, the T20 Fergie, uh, which was a one well, quite advanced for its day. But since then, of course, we've had bigger, faster, more powerful machines being developed, which is very much rooted in the industrial revolution. And now we're we're coming into what they're calling the fourth age of agriculture, aren't we? And so, how, it's a question of how the, that is adopted by customers. Yeah. Um, what do you think is the way forward, Dan, into this effectively, into this new age? Yeah, that's a good
1: point. You can call it the fourth generation of agriculture or four, whatever it is that you want to call it. It is a difference. And so, the way that I look at that, I have, I love history. So, I have a little bit of a history, overly history buff lens to put on it is from 1840 to maybe 2000, you generally saw the in- industrial economy was the foundation and the bedrock of most Western economies. The U.S. here, you in, in, in England, I think that that was definitely the case. What you saw in 2000 was that, that there were some things that caused that to shift. And so what that meant is the industrial economy was largely based on mass production and mass distribution, right? How do we build it? And then, and that's what you saw all of our governments drive to after they followed business into that. They said, how do we, this is how we create value. This is how we distribute. This is how we do things. In 2000, we saw a shift over to, I call it the software defined world based on mass connectivity and mass computation. So how much can we do at the edge and how can we connect that to a, to another, to a group of, of of machines that allow us to do something that we weren't able to do before. So a, a quick example of that would be like the taxi industry, right? So if you look at the taxi industry served a good purpose and had a good purpose up until Uber and Lyft changed that, con- changed the conversation and changed the way that we were addressing the problem of transporting ourselves from one place to another. They used a, a software defined network to help challenge the way that we thought about the way that we thought about getting from point A to point B. And And in so doing, they created an enormous amount of value. And so if you look at all the companies that are coming up now, they're not created, they're not necessarily the Ford company, right? So if you look at the River Rouge plant, Ford here in the States, that was an enormous plant, and you had raw materials going in one side and a Model T coming out the other side. Right? And and that was the model for everything, it's an economy that is defined by mass distribution and mass production. It's how do I, how do we collect resources and then how do we distribute those resources effectively? So that's where you saw the, the rise of the railroad drove a lot of the production in, in this con- country and across the Western world, I would say globally, in fact, created a lot of the value that we appreciate today. And that had, had a, a great effect for us. But now you're seeing this shift that's taken place with software defined networks where there's a distribution happening naturally. To each of those, each of us now as farmers, as retailers, operate more like nodes on a network, where we have the opportunity to really niche down and provide unique value other people can't provide, and our value will be determined from an economic standpoint. Are we, are we talking
0: about customized products, really? No, I think we're talking.
1: I'm I'm talking about more the fact that we have the opportunity to we have the opportunity to niche down specifically and and talk and provide value it, it's the fundamentally a shift in the way that agriculture is going to provide value in the past look at look at how the agricultural system that exists here in the states right now is that i grow my neighbor grows 6000 acres of corn right? and so he grows 6000 acres of corn but the only reason that he's able to continue to keep his farm because the federal government subsidizes that corn right For him. and i don't think that that's necessary right? Right now, we have a situation in the, in the U.S. where at the beginning of this year, I haven't seen the stats for the end of the year, but at the beginning of the year, the USDA came out and said that the median farm income was going to be negative. It was going to be a negative $1,200 right about. And that, I think that is is a result of the fact that we are not engaging with the software-defined networks and creating value in the way that it is now created. As an agricultural system, we are very much in the 20th century in the way that we we are not having we are not having conversations. We are not providing value in a niche down way and distributing goods in that way, or sharing value from a network perspective. And I think ag tech, a lot of people miss what ag tech is not just the same system with new technology, with new measurements, with new tools on farm. It's actually it's actually a fundamental shift in the way that agriculture will run. And so, what that means for for us, as farmers, for us as retailers, for all all the way up the chain is that our business now has the opportunity to do something unique. We can, there's only one of your business. There's only one of your farm. There's things that I can grow here in Minnesota that can't be grown in California, that can't be grown in North Carolina, vice versa. And so what do I have the opportunity to grow here to differentiate myself from the rest of the marketplace? And that's ultimately what I'm talking about. It, It gives us the opportunity to say, We're going to really be specific about what it is that we're trying to do here. And that the software-defined networks then allow us to connect to a network that will pay us for that difference. And that that can translate all the way up to, I know your audience is generally more machinery. That that translates all the way up to machinery as well.
0: Yeah. And if we take the machinery industry, and uh, shall I say the Western machinery industry, because uh, India and China are very different markets. It is dominated by three or four uh, major players, global players, who tend to set the agenda for change, and uh, yes. because they're able to, and they've got the bucks to do it. So much of this development is coming from startups and uh, small innovators. How do they get heard above the above the noise of the majors who've obviously got the big bucks to be able to do that?
1: Yeah, it's definitely not playing their game, right? So the one of the big things that I talk about is how to create movements, and the only way that a, the only way that a startup can compete in a marketplace dominated by Deer and Case and Agco, which it is, and for good reason, those companies have created an enormous amount of value, enormous amount of productivity for their customers. And so there, nothing against them, but if you're going to try to be a startup in that space, and you want to try to do to shake up the way that the industry thinks about those things. You cannot go to market the same way that those companies did. You cannot think about how to talk to your customers in the same way that those companies did. You can't look at the the market and say, we're going to just, we're going to be a better John Deere. It's ridiculous. John Deere has had hundred, over a hundred years of becoming the best John Deere that possibly can. And so in order to do what I like to say is we build these movements and, and movement, building a movement and creating a movement and generating a movement. Is a creating a a point of a frustration in the customer's mind with the status quo. And so we say we want, we want to take you from point A to point B. And you can't reconcile that point B with the status quo that exists today. You can't say, oh, that's just a, a a new version of what we've current what we've currently got today. This is moving from from one place to another. And so what we try to do. Most companies, when they're starting out, most startups, they go after the weaknesses of the incumbents. They look at maybe, maybe Deere's made some promises in autonomy that they haven't that they haven't necessarily fulfilled. And fair enough. Or see some they see like an opportunity for different um, strap-on kits or different things like that, and and they go attack that and say that's what we're going to do. When really the better plan for how to go to market in in, in that market is to look at the incumbent, look at their strength and then flip that strength into a weakness. And so a good example of that is, an Airbnb would be a good example of that with Marriott. And so the Marriott, ho- Marriott hotels existed for 70 years before Airbnb even came around. And every experience, every customer experience was tailored to be exactly the same over and over again. And that's why Marriott became the largest, one of the largest hotel companies in the world. And they were extremely successful at that. All their Marriott hotels looked the same, and you had the same experience in Paris as you had in New York City, and you had the same experience anywhere you went in the Marriott family. And what Airbnb said is they flipped that by telling people to live like a local. They said, we don't want every experience to look the same. We want to experience each city as if we were locals there. And that resonated with a group of people and allowed that message to spread across across the marketplace and now has disrupted, right, because we always use this term disruption, which I hate, but they have disrupted the marketplace for those hotels.
0: I, I think, Dan, I went to a the, the, the series of um, conferences held uh, both in the U.S. and over here and in Europe, the um, Agritech Investment Summits uh, yes. that are held, and I went to one of the ones in London and I came away with the impression that there were more solutions, uh, than there were, um, problems to solve. So, so if you are an innovator, what sort of, and you want to get into the market and, and you think that your product is the best thing since sliced bread. But what are the questions you ought to ask yourself before you set out particularly on, on your journey?
1: Yeah. No. Th- there 's definitely a situation of, of solutions chasing problems that's absolutely true and I, I think your impression of that is correct I do think it en masse, that's not a bad thing it's a acknowledgement of where we are as an industry if you're speaking specifically about what you should do as a company in order to not, in order to find a problem that's worth solving that's worth framing for the customer in a unique way what you should really do is go and sit down with them and have a real conversation with with a group of of growers and what the big mistake that a lot of ag tech companies make see this i've seen this over and over again actually retailers make this i'm I'm working with a retailer right now who's currently experiencing this they go into these farmers and they say wouldn't it isn't this product cool or they have a solution and they bring it to them and they say how great is this this is going to change your life and growers while they complain and they if i'm going to the coffee shop later today i'm going to hear a lot of complaining i'm going to hear a lot of of ag prices are up and all these types of things they make complain like that they're generally really agreeable people so if you're excited about something and you come up to a grower and you say hey wouldn't this be great if i could do this for you they're going to say yes absolutely that sounds great that'd be great and they have no intention of and i've seen that repeat process repeat over and over again to the point where now it's like okay we have to think differently about the way that we're looking at this and so what i like to say is i like to try to take the ego out of Let's remove our ego from the conversation that we're having there. Let's go in. Let's just spend a day experiencing the life of our customer. So look at your customer and say, How, what is, what are the things that are going on in their life? Where, and what are the points in their day where I can possibly insert myself, and not be disruptive, but just sit there and l- talk with them and listen to them, watch them go through their work day and then ask lots of questions, start asking lots of questions. Why do you do it this way? Why? Oh, Interesting. I saw that you did this, and growers love that. Like, they love people who are interested in them. M- many of them do it. I shouldn't think so broadly, but many of them love people who take an interest in what they're doing because they're dying for that in a lot of cases. But so they'll sit. You sit there and you ask them lots of questions about what they do. They'll tell you, and you have the opportunity to to learn from them, and then come back with. I like to say you do this over multiple interviews, multiple people, but you do collect a lot of those get a lot of reps at at listening and then go into hey wouldn't it be wouldn't it be interesting if you could do it this way or if you could do this slightly differently like that what would you think about that and you're onto something at that point when that person gets really excited lean forward and they start talking to you about how they really wanted to do this forever they may have even jimmy rigged something on their farm in order to do it they may have They've worked something on on their own because farmers are incredibly industrious people. So yeah, I wish that solution existed. It doesn't currently exist. I've always got to, I've always got to modify my equipment in order to do that this way. And you're onto something at that point when they get really excited about it. And then you can start taking them more. Oh, actually I built this thing. You know, here's how we do this. We can do this. Or another answer that you hear that's really promising actually is something like, Oh yeah, we tried that. We tried that before and it didn't work. A lot of people think that's a really bad thing to hear from their customers, but it's actually one of the best things you can hear from your customer because they understand the problem, but they know the problem exists. And and now they're willing to hear you talk about how to fix
0: it. It's a problem, Dan, that uh, so many of these very clever innovators scientists and scientists and so on, that they are too obsessed with the product itself and don't pay enough attention to the, uh, the messaging, and oh, indeed the, the actual reason for why they're doing it.
1: It's, yeah, it's total, it's a loss of, uh, I like to say I do problem-led marketing. So we look at well, how do we really focus on the problem? What is the problem? Start with, when I say the problem, I don't mean your problem company, the customer's problem, right? Because company may have lots of different problems, but nobody really cares unless you can tell the customer that you're trying to get pay you money for this thing you want to do, Until you can get them to value what you're doing, they don't care what your problems are. And I see a lot of startups in particular who have raised lots of venture capital being really worried about their own problems and not worrying about the customer's problems. we have to battle a natural human inclination to do natural to focus on yourself. But look, your customers are focusing on themselves too. And so when you're both having a conversation about your own problems, you're not going to move anywhere.
0: Yeah, I I think some of this is going on because obviously there's new methods of farming and particularly movement in regenerative farming, and and that is spawning a lot of specialist events where the, the rationale for doing it is uppermost rather than the machinery and the equipment to do it. And that is, I think that's getting towards what you call your movement. Would you agree? I think that's, I think that's
1: right. That's happening. It's emerging in agri- agriculture. People are pointing lots of different directions, whether you're com- conversation about regenerative. What does regenerative actually mean? That's an interesting conversation to have with people. Do you cover crop? All these types of the, these signals that mean some, something to somebody and something different to somebody
0: else. Who is best to inform the market? And I say the market and I'm including manufacturers, suppliers, farmers, agronomists, and everybody involved in this industry. Where where does the leadership of any new movement, and indeed they are required, and I take your point about the movements, how do we get that message across? Or how do you get that message across?
1: It's really good. So it can happen in a number of different ways, I'll say at the outset. But the best way for that to happen is for an organization who has solved a unique problem, who has identified a unique problem with a group of customers who were frustrated with the status quo. And that tends to be about, we look at across time and across studies, about 3% of the population of your customers or your potential market is probably frustrated enough to switch to what you're selling today. And they're willing to buy at this point. Um, and obviously that's making... Ton of assumptions in in that three percent number. It really, it's really the companies who are evangelizing a new point of view, and who whose CEOs are are not afraid of getting out in public and having conversations about what's wrong with the status quo, what's advantageous about doing things in a different way, and why customers should do it, why they should believe that this company is possibly any good at that at all. And so you look across the marketing sphere, it's totally it's you want to talk about a mess that's a mess it's a mess to to work in marketing right now if you're going to go from a media buying perspective from a from an advertising perspective awful And i would not want to work in that business and so part of the reason that i call myself the agribusiness psychotherapist is to remove myself from what people conventionally call marketing so that we can do things that actually help companies move forward and that that is communicating a different A different and unique value proposition to our customers that allows them to take the problems that they currently have and overcome them and at the end of the day that's ultimately what we're trying to do and you can do that for free you can you started this podcast look you have the opportunity in today's world to do a lot of to get your message to the world without lots of barriers we used to have three tv channels here in the u.s that's not the case anymore that doesn't exist. All those TV, actually, a lot of those TV networks are now becoming obsolete because of podcasts. People are choosing to put their eyeballs in different places. They're choosing to get their news and their information from different spaces. That provides the opportunity for companies to not be beholden to the system as it existed, not just buy an ad. Don't just buy an ad. Go out and say why somebody should make a case and make an appeal to to your customer base about why they should buy your specific thing. Why is this different? Why is this unique? Why is your point of view and perspective worth listening to?
0: Yeah, yeah. And Dan, specifically, and this kind of focuses on the role of uh, the agricultural machinery industry, which is steeped in tradition, um, it has long been that a manufacturer uh, spends zillions and zillions on um uh, testing and research and uh, building uh, a product to the best of their ability and uh, to to very uh, exacting standards and tests it. And then they do something stupid, that they actually give it to somebody else to sell. Sure, When the sensible thing should be that that they're in control of of that selling process, because who can know the product any better than they do? Sure. So I think I was just really going to get your view on whether you see this traditional model of of manufacturers selling to dealers and distributors and so on and indeed whether we're going to see different models which encompass usage rather than ownership. Yeah, no. I think it was uh, recently I was
1: listening to or uh, I heard somebody told me a quote and I'm going to botch who it came from so I'm not even going to try but it it was that In in the 21st century, we the evolution of agriculture will be more about the evolution of the business models that we have, and it will be about necessarily new pieces of technology. And so, business model is an is such an underappreciated it's an underappreciated asset that a company has in in their go to market because everybody assumed the context in which they were born, assumes the context in which they joined the market. And doesn't look and say, "How could this be different? How could we make this better for the customers? So on your dealer question, to go back to the root of your question, I think that I don't I obviously this is speculation hundred percent I do see that dealers operated off of what you would call maybe asymmetric asymmetric information right? they had a leverage on their customers because they were able to tell them something that the customer didn't know and wasn't able to know themselves and wasn't able to go out and research and that, that really flipped it really we've really made a change in that cuz now the, the grower has a lot of that information at their own hands they they're able to do a lot of research they're able to make probably 70% of the buying decision before they even engage with a dealer in some cases and that's not every grower but a lot of them have the opportunity to do that and so in that world now the dealer has to switch what their value proposition is at all when you talk about manufacturers versus dealers and the, i can see where a dealer is advantageous you know, from a distribution perspective but i think a lot of people have overplayed that a little bit and said they have this huge distribution network set up but that's operating off of an old way of thinking about things which is mass production mass distribution are the dominating force of the economy but mass connectivity and mass computation are now it's more of a problem of what specific problem is that dealership solving as opposed to how many customers are they able to get this piece of machinery out to? And I think because of that, because now there is not, there's more of a flat world from that informational perspective. It does open the forces dealers to now say, what is it that we're uniquely providing the customers? And you have company like I work with a company called swarm farm robotics in Australia and they're going no dealer model, right? They're, they're, and, and. So and you've seen this with the likes of Tesla and some other groups, and obviously there's an enormous hill to climb because the dealer model is so well entrenched in the industry. But you have the opportunity to think outside the box and to say, how can we make this better for the community that we're going into when they've really been handicapped? In that community specifically, has been really handicapped in the past. To say we've got to have a dealer, we've got to operate with a dealer. How can we do that? With without a dealer. And that doesn't mean that dealers will go away altogether. It just means that they need to come up with a reason to exist. And I know a lot of dealers probably won't like hearing that, but at the same time, you have to have a unique value proposition and it is no longer okay for you to just say, all we're going to do is hawk machinery and equipment. You really have to be You have to have some level of knowledge, some differentiation, some sort of unique value proposition to the grower helps you move above uh, the Mendoza line, if you will, to say, we're worth buying. And
0: uh, certain companies, particularly within the robotics field, are doing that already, uh, certainly over here and, as you say, in Australia. Dana, do you think agriculture is lagging behind other sectors in the adoption of new technology or can the agricultural sector indeed learn so much from others in 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 similar but not the same fields
1: yeah absolutely i think it's really overplayed that we talk about growers and people in in my sphere a lot of people bash growers and say they'd never adopt anything when what's really fascinating and interesting is that the all the adoption curves that technology companies built their models off of and saw analyzed in their businesses were based off of studies that we saw from hybrid corn trials in the 1930s it's not that agriculture evolves slower it's that it's harder when you're dealing with a world of atoms plus bits i like to say so bits is like the the digital world atoms is the physical can't move or well can move but can't be as easily changed perhaps as this piece of software for example you're not when you have to when you're intersection of both of those things you are forced to deal with realities that a company like say twitter who came out of that early 2000s tech boom twitter didn't have to deal with anything that operated outside of a software-defined world and in that it's layering the software-defined world over this world of of atoms of physical nature that, that allows agriculture and will allow agriculture to operate better and improve the industry overall and improve the way that we operate overall into the future. And so I I think, I don't think that we've adopted slower. I think it's a, it's an added problem. And it's actually interesting. I, I think that's the future now It's we had this software boom from 2000 to 2020, where it was like everything, everything software, that's where you saw farm management systems blow up. And now they've really, that market has really contracted around just a few winners. If you look at John Deere Ops Center, uh, if you look at climate field view, those are the ones that really have option in the marketplace. And because that, that exploded and then has contracted back into the few, I think you're going to see that across all these different places. So wherever a problem exists from an atoms at the corner of atoms and you're going to see an explosion of lots of different people coming into the marketplace, and then you're going to see a contraction around that. And, and you're going to watch that over and over again. And you, actually, that's not just something that's happened uh, or has happened recently, or wow, what a weird thing for that to happen in the farm management system. It, it, it's actually, that's a rule, a principal rule baked into the way that we do business, the way that we live and the way that our world works and so what you see right now is this giant explosion of companies who are trying to do lots of different things and you're going to see a contraction of that and you're going to see that's going all the value is going to center around the organization best defines the problem for their customer because w- what i like to say is that com- the company that defines and evangelizes the problem the best is the company that's best positioned to dominate the market
0: look dan i'm really uh delighted to to catch up with you today and uh... You've raised some extremely innovative, if I might say interesting answers, and you, I think you've only used the phrase "out of thinking out of the box once, so congratulations on that. but actually, it is all about that in a way uh, and lastly, what do you see the major obstacles being for farmers transitioning to new, perhaps automated technology, because we are now seeing drones and robots becoming fairly commonplace in in certain specialized areas so what is going to be that the problems facing the industry as a whole to make sure that transition is as smooth and possibly as fast as possible
1: i know i i think that's a great question i think it's a great summation of the current the current marketplace in that there are these giant shifts happening there are it's scary to change anything, right? So off, off the top, let's just say it's scary to change anything. But I think that there are two possible failure points for us as agribusinesses or farmers. I'll say there are two possible failure points. And the first one is for us to say, we're not going to change. We're going to keep doing what grandpa did. Dad did. The reality is you don't live in the world that grandpa did. You don't live in the world that dad did. So if you're not willing to change, that's not going to be for your business. In interested, at least interested in engaging with the new economy, the new ec- economic forces of the economy in, in that way. If, if you're not willing to lean into innovation, I think you're going to get lefty. The same thing is true though of the innovation. If we lean too far into innovation and totally just dis- totally uproot ourselves, then that will be another failure point in, in that we don't remember what grandpa did. We don't remember what dad did. And so I think the truth is. It's not looking back and saying that was wrong. This is right. Industrial wrong, software defined. That's not what I'm here to say. What I'm here to say is that we take that and say that was so good that time. There are definitely things that we can learn and hold on to as tradition from them and pull forward into the future. So we take the good and leave some of the things that aren't working in the farming system now and pull that forward and say, we're going to integrate the old The historical value that we had with some of the with the new things that we've got, and layer those two things together, and you look at that across time. Again, to go from a historical example, a group that really had interesting point of view on this was the early ancient Egyptians, and so the integration of of history and what we've had in the past, and and the new and the vision into the future, and so if we can integrate those two things we can be effective and continue to move forward into the future. But we have a disintegration between innovation and and historical value and historical values. Now, all of a sudden, we're going to run into real problems for ourselves. And we're going to create some real challenges. And honestly, chaos will rule. And so we have the opportunity. We we have an enormous opportunity in front of us. We also have lots of challenges in front of us. If we lean too hard one way or the other into the history, into history or into the future, we risk losing something really important and grounding for ourselves.
0: That's absolutely fascinating, Dan, and uh, thank you again. And if people want to catch up with you, and uh, I know you, you put out a lot of information, wh- where can they do that?
1: Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn at least three times a week at Dan Schultz. And uh, they could also go to schultzcollaborative.com.
0: I'll put those uh, links in the uh, in the show notes anyway. So, Dan, once again, many thanks. It's been a blast and really talking about so many things that are on the horizon, some of which are possible. And I suppose we all come back to that favorite phrase that the only constant is change. And that's That's where we are at the moment. So thank you very much indeed.
1: Awesome. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. I appreciate it.
0: Now, I hope that you managed to get your head around all of that. It is very useful to stand back from everyday issues, clear your mind and try and think clearly about the future direction of travel, the forks in the road we all face. And always keep in mind that short two-word phrase, what if. My thanks again to Dan for a terrific episode, which I hope will keep you thinking. So I'm Chris Biddle, thank you for joining me, and this is Inside Agriturf.